I want you to imagine that you get to play the role this morning of Dear Abby. And you receive this letter. My boyfriend wants to see me without makeup so he can see the pure me. I don't wear a lot of makeup, just a little foundation, mascara, and minimal eyeliner. Honestly, I'm afraid he might be disappointed if he saw that me, the real me. What would you advise this young lady to do? In light of this concern, I suspect most of us, whether we understand where she's coming for or not, would eventually say you don't want to end up married to somebody who can't see you without your makeup on. I think that would be a little hard to pull off in a marriage, wouldn't it? And so we might encourage her to allow that to happen. But what if this were the situation instead? Dear Abby, I'm a God-loving, Bible-following Christian. My wife was recently diagnosed with Huntington's chorea, a progressive neurodegenerative, well, that's a hard word to say, neurodegenerative disorder that leads not only to the loss of all voluntary body movements, but to memory loss, depression, and various forms of dementia, including hallucinations and paranoia. In addition, I also learned that the disease is genetically transmitted and that 50%, my kids each have a 50% chance of getting the disease. And he writes, I'm filled with anger. I feel abandoned by God. I find myself drowning in a dark pit. Love, John. And how do you respond to John? And, and so we have any sort of number of Christian answers that we may offer in a situation like that. We say, well, suffering is the result of, of sin. And as long as we live in a fallen world, then you'll experience that hurt. But don't worry, God will eventually set the record straight. Or someone might say, we can't understand God's ways. That They're, they're just beyond our puny little minds. We, just, we trust knowing that God is in control. But what about this answer? Would you be comfortable saying... Why don't you cry? Why don't you complain? Why don't you tell God exactly how you feel? See, we generally are not very comfortable with the concept of lament. There is a Greek myth of a man named uh, Procrustes, and I tried to find the best picture, and so parents, hopefully you, your kids will be able to sleep at night. But what Procrustes would do is, as people would travel by and they would sleep in his small iron bed, he would find that many people were far too long for the bed. And so what he would do is he would arrange for them to fit the bed, not by altering the bed, but by altering the person. Use your imagination of how that happens. And it's a myth about forcing someone to fit into an unnatural scheme or pattern. It's finding the wrong solution to a problem. I think in many ways Christianity has been contaminated with the form of theology that is much like Procrustius, where we force people into a narrow emotional range, where we cannot experience far too positive emotions, nor are we allowed to experience far too negative of emotions. See, we might say as good Christians, well, you can be bothered or ruffled or irritated. Oh, but please don't be fuming or outrageous, or furious. And so we put these boundary markers in. We might say, okay, it's all right to be down, or to be blue, or to be somber, but don't be crushed, or despairing, or devastated. And so most of us 
treat our relationship with God much like the girl who refuses to take the makeup off. In our prayers, in our relationships with each other, and often in our relationship with God, we put on makeup and we become something different than what we are. And it's because of this wrong-headed view of emotion that, as a result, many of us think that in times of pain and in sorrow and confusion, there's but a few narrow options. The first option most of us embrace is when we encounter these things, we either deny or minimize the pain that we're feeling. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, aren't, aren't you? I'm okay, aren't, aren't you? And we put on that smile. Or we just cover it up. Or we just say, I'm fine. Or we pretend to be something that we know is not the case. And so for some of us in pain, we think that's the pathway we choose. We deny, we minimize, we cover up, and we pretend. We stuff it, we ignore it, we forget it, and then we just try to move on. Now, there's another pathway that most of us think is available for us, which is the pathway of guilt. Man, there's got to be something wrong with me. I mean, look at that guy over there, Harold. His wife just died, and look at how he's handling that. And, and look at Sally. She's going through a divorce, and look at how she's doing. But me, man, I'm just crying all the time. I'm just hurting. I'm just in pain. Why is everybody else allowed to go on so happy looking without their makeup on? Truth is, they have their makeup on. But they act like they don't have makeup on. And so what's wrong with me? If I were a better Christian, I wouldn't feel like I'm feeling. But I don't think either of those two pathways are biblical and are reasonable in light of the fallen world that we live in. And thankfully, the Psalms offer us a third choice. Honest lamenting. Being honest with God about what we're feeling and about what we're experiencing in this life. Somewhere between a third and a half of all of the psalms are lament. What's interesting as you think about the pure number of psalms that are lament is if you compare that to our contemporary songbooks and the songs that we sing. Somebody recently did a study and said 4% of our songs are lament compared to 50 to 66% in the psalms. We don't do lament. And I wonder why that is. And, and maybe it has something to do with our comfort level. So here's the lament comfort level test to see how you feel about being in the presence of lamenting. So you imagine the psalmist as he's walking into the church building and you shake his hand and you say, how are you doing? And he responds by saying, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes. Do you feel at all uncomfortable? Do you know what to say next? Do you know what to do? You hear the psalmist is sick, and so you stop by the house and you ask him, So, how are you doing? And he says, My wounds grow foul and fester because of all of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go around mourning. My loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am utterly spent and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you have a ready answer? What do you do? 
The psalmist asks if you would read his journal entry and give him some advice, and so you do. And the psalmist writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for the Lord. Do you feel uncomfortable? Do you have a ready answer? What do you do? We don't talk like that. We don't use language like the psalmist uses. You see, in the first two weeks as we looked at our series on psalms, we looked at these psalms of orientation. These psalms of praise when when God's world is ordered and structured and everything that ought to be happening is happening. Things are turning out in the ways that they're supposed to be turning out. But now we move into these psalms of disorientation. When the psalmist is saying, this shouldn't be happening. Where, where, Where the psalmist is saying, this is not the way that things ought to be. And so the psalmist finds himself often in a tailspin, unable to decipher what is up and what is down. See, think about the, the promise of Psalm 1-1, one of the psalms of orientation. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. And yet, Psalm 17, the psalmist writes, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths, and my feet have not slipped. But he's not experiencing this happiness that is promised in Psalm 1-1. Or think about what he writes in Psalm 26. I do not sit with the worthless, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the company of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. And yet, the psalmist experiences distress and disorientation. See, the laments are like walking outside on a minus 40 degree day and you can barely breathe. And even with multiple layers of gloves, you feel the stinging pain in your hands. If you've ever been in a time of lament, you don't need it described because you've felt what it's like to be there. I mean, consider the situation of the psalmist in Psalm 55, where he writes, It is not the enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It is not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, with whom I kept pleasant company. We walked in the house of God with the throng. Do you see the situation they're talking about? I mean, imagine that person, the person you are closest with in this church. You go to church together. You go and you have coffee together, and you share with each other your deepest, darkest secrets, and now that is the person who is leading the charge against you. What does that feel like? See, the psalmist is often not asking us, what do we think about this situation? He's asking us to feel something. What would that feel like to be betrayed by your closest companion, your dearest friend? And it creates an emotional reaction. But the question becomes, are we free to express those emotions we feel? Or should we be forced like Procrustes into a bed that says, here, you can only experience these emotions? I want you to think for a moment what it would be like living under a God who does not allow lament. 
I read uh, a part of a fictional story this week about a girl named Mia. Mia's dad, uh, James, was a prominent lawyer in Chicago. And as a lawyer, he's used to, a prominent judge, and as a judge, he's used to telling people what they need to do. And not only is he content in telling them what they need to do, but what they ought to think. And so Mia grew up in this home where every time she felt off, her dad said, no, feel this way instead. No, feel this way instead. No, feel this way instead. And the day she turned 18, she moved out of the house. Because what would it be like to live in the home of somebody who could not stand or give a place for your concerns, for the injustices that you experience? See, I think somewhere along the way we've begun to believe a narrative that James, this prominent judge, is just like God. God who has no patience for our complaining and for our whining. A God who would rather that we just change our attitude, put on a smile, And pretend that everything is okay. A God who tells us to look at all the good he's done. And just to move past what we're feeling. And I think that's why it's important. Why this stuck with me. What Walter Brueggemann says. The absence of lament makes a religion of coercive obedience the only possibility. Do you see what he's saying here? If God does not allow lament then God will dictate what you should feel. And when God dictates what you should feel, you pretend to feel it, even though you don't. So then why would God then allow or even encourage lament? Brueggemann says that we find in lament a redistribution of power. So God creates the world, and God could easily say to us, I'm not going to allow you to talk to me that way. I'm not going to allow you to express your concern or your dissatisfaction. And yet what God does is he humbles himself in that he allows us to share with him. See, in an authoritarian relationship, you don't care about what the subjects think. When you're the king and you, and you put a tax on the people, you don't care whether they like the tax or not because you're the king and you have the authority to do so. But in a relationship, you care what the other person thinks. And you want to know what the other person thinks. Do they like it? Do they not? And so instead of silence, God the king, he makes himself vulnerable in lament. He makes himself vulnerable because oftentimes the laments are accusations against God himself. God, why did you allow this to happen? See, we see that example in the text that we had read, Psalm 13. Look at the lament here, beginning in verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? See, the lament begins in a season of distress. We don't know the specific situation, but in some way, David is being ruled over by his enemies. And his concern is that God is absent or inattentive or unresponsive. And if you're God, and you've done all of this work for David, do you allow him to talk to you that way? God not only allows it, he invites it, and he records it as an example for us to follow. And so I think one of the reasons why lament plays such an important role, why God allows lament, is that we cannot function in the world, in a fallen world, without room for lament. 
God knows this world is not what it ought to be. And he knows as a result we will find ourselves in a position of pain and of suffering. I, I think about uh, Philip Haley who um, spent several years studying Nazi cruelty, specifically the medical testing that was done with children. And as he, as he journals and talks about those experiences, you can find him f- feeling himself falling further and further into a pit of despair. And he says, one day as he was writing, he felt a tingling sensation on his cheek. He thought it was a piece of dust that he reached up to, to move away. And he realized that it was, it was wet, that there was a tear. But he said, not just one tear or two tears, but both of his cheeks were covered with water. And he looked down at his notes and everything, and that was covered with water. Now, do you look at him and do you say, that's an inappropriate response? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. There are times and places in this world where weeping is the most appropriate response. Because we find ourselves in situations where we should weep, where we ought to weep. And see, that's a part of the irony of the lament psalms. Is that in our lamenting, we often grow closer to God. The very God whom we feel distant from. It's an ironic thing, you see. So the laments, they actually enhance our relationship with God. It moves us to a place that is more genuine and that is more authentic. It brings us to a place with a deeper level of honesty. See, so David says, how long, O Lord? So to whom is the lament addressed? He goes right to God, whom he is afraid is absent and distant, and yet he brings his concern to him. Somewhere fundamentally, David knows and understands God is the only person who is there. So the very concern that he's expressing is then contradicted by his action. He's saying, God, you're far away, and because of that, I'm going to come to you and complain. So David knows more than he knows. He experiences more than he experiences because the laments, every single one of the laments, are brought directly to God. And so David says, will you forget me forever? And yet, if he really knew that he was forgotten, he wouldn't turn to this God. And so he feels comfortable going to God. And it is in the very act of coming to God that he finds his relationship with God is restored. See, one of the things that I found interesting as I started looking at the laments is that they often follow a very strict format. That there's a pattern and and a movement to them. And so Tremper Longman puts together, these are the seven elements of the Psalms. And he says, interesting enough, all but two of them um, end with either number six or number seven combined, which is this hopefulness to them. So the, the Psalms have this movement. And, then, and when you see a pattern, here's what, here's what biblical scholars like to do. They like to wrestle over the reason for that. Why is that there? And so one, one person will say, well, that's because there's a prescribed template to lamenting. So in other words, what you find in Judaism is saying it is okay to lament to God as long as you follow this prescribed pattern. As long as you end up at the end of it with praise, then you can lament which would be very ironic in terms of saying a God who's not going to dictate how we should feel is going to now dictate how we should feel. Seems like a strange thing to me. So the other possibility, which I think is a little bit more likely, is that the lament themselves are transformative. When you follow in a healthy process of lament, you will end up with hope and trust and optimism. It is in the very act of lamenting that we are taken to where we could not go 
if we tried to avoid the laments. God is saying, therefore, bring all of your hardship and burden to me. And when you do, you will find me more faithful than you did before. More present. And I want to share a couple of stories that I think illustrate a portion of this transforming that happens in the midst of lament. This is a story that comes out of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Horse and His Boy. Uh, Shasta is the main character in this narrative. And, And here's what he says describing his life. I do think that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the world. Everything goes right for everyone except for me. You know what you call that? That's lamenting. When you get to that place where you feel that dark. And so one day he finds himself walking in the midst of pitch blackness. You know, the kind of blackness where you can't even see your hands in front of you. And as he's walking along there, he is feeling very tired. Having nothing inside of him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. And he's experiencing what it means to walk in that valley of darkness. But it says as he's walking along, he sensed that someone or somebody or something was walking beside him. And he wondered, was there really someone there? Was this just his imagination that that there was somebody walking alongside him? Because after all, it was quite dark. And so he's kind of mentally processing this back and forth until he says he felt a deep breath on his left hand and he realized there was someone there walking beside him. And as Lewis tells it, he says, now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. See, it's something happens in that dark and lonely place when you realize you're not walking alone. You're not enduring this by yourself, but that there is another, someone who walks alongside you. Now, what we find is that the one who walks alongside him is Aslan, who for Lewis is the Christ figure, the representation of Jesus being there present in the midst. So this large lion is there walking beside Shasta. And Aslan, when he realizes that Shasta knows that he's there, he says, tell me your sorrow. What happens when we're in the absolute darkness that the king invites us to begin to share what's troubling us. He invites us to tell what burdens us. And so it is there in the midst of that absolute darkness, the two begin talking. And Shasta says that he was no longer, as they continue talking, afraid of that deep voice. Instead, a new and a different sort of trembling came over him, and he felt glad too, just through sharing with this other. And, and, and I want us to allow Lewis to tell the stories on place. He says, The mist was turning from blackness to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not noticed anything else. Now the whiteness all around him became a shining brightness, and his eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he could hear the birds singing, And he knew that the night was over at last. And so what if Aslan had said, tell me your sorrows, and Shasta refused? He would not talk to the one who invited him to share his sorrow. Then I don't know that he would have come to this place where the sun 
began to rise and where the birds began to sing. See, in the Psalms of Lament, God is inviting you to tell him your sorrow. And that's when the transformation happens. That's when, and we don't know how, how long the journey will be out of the darkness. We just know that eventually, as someone once said, it, we will not always get there quickly. It does not always come easily, but day always comes. And the healing is, is, is not anything that changes the status of this world. It is simply recognizing and realizing that you're in the relationship with one who holds the power. And one who knows the future. Perhaps a, a final story from the Chronicles of Narnia. This time a story about Didgeri. Didgeri, like Shasta, he finds himself in the presence of Aslan. And he is concerned about his mother. And as he approaches Aslan, he refuses to look at him in the face. And he will only look to the ground. And so he's looking down and he's begging Aslan to help his mother. Because his mother's in a situation where she needs to be cured, and he knows that Aslan can only do it. But he will not look in his face, because he's afraid of what he will see. But as they talk, he eventually looks up. And as Lewis tells it, he says, he sees great shining tears in the lion's eye. They were such big, bright tears compared with didgeries, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he himself was. So isn't that what happens in lament? We, 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 we wonder, God, don't you care? God, aren't you there? And we come to find out, indeed, he is there. And we come to find out that the sorrow that he bears in our sorrow is no less than the very sorrow we ourselves bear. And so my encouragement to you is that in your relationship with God, you'll take off the makeup. You let him see that you. The, the you that you're afraid that he would reject. Because as you open up in honesty with God, you will find healing to the pain that you don't think there is any healing for. And you'll find yourself in a deeper relationship with the God that right now you find confused about. And when you look into the eyes of God, perhaps you'll see that his tears make you feel like he's sorrier for everything than you could ever be. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want to, uh, to pray with someone this morning, I invite you to come back while we stand and while we sing together.